Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Many years ago, in 2004 to be exact, I did my very first Ironman in Penticton, British Columbia. Earlier that year, a colleague of mine in my emergency medicine residency had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a real shock for me to see a close friend, several years younger than I was, have to deal with a terrible diagnosis with an uncertain prognosis. Seeing her go through chemotherapy with the grace and strength that she did inspired me and all of those who knew her, and I made the decision pretty early on to honor her struggle by joining the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's team in training in order to raise money for that laudable organization. At the time, I was one of the first triathletes to remotely join what was then a local training group in San Francisco, and I was grateful for the opportunity. I made some great friends and raised a lot of money on the way to completing my first full-distance triathlon. My friend completed her treatment successfully and emerged from her ordeal cancer-free. But in 2020, as I'm scheduled to return to Penticton to again compete in Ironman Canada, lymphoma has ironically impacted my life once again, and this time, unfortunately, it's even closer to home. A week ago, I got the news that my youngest daughter, 10-year-old Lauren, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, this is a disease with a very favorable prognosis, and Lauren is doing amazingly well so far, but as a family, we're struggling with the knowledge of what we know lies ahead. This time around, I won't be raising money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, but rather taking advantage of what that fantastic organization has to offer families impacted by the disease. What I've learned in the past week is that as important as triathlon is in my life, it's really not that important. In the grand scheme of things, it's merely something that I do to keep myself fit and really entertained. While I've never taken the sport really that seriously, if any of you out there listening have been tempted to, I'd urge you to reconsider, because life has a way of resetting your priorities in an instant sometimes. So let my lesson apply to you, rather than having to find out for yourself. The other thing that I learned is that while triathlon is really not that important, it still remains a vital part of my coping strategy. With the support of my family, I've still been able to carve out training time, and that has been really crucial to maintaining my mental health in what has been an incredibly difficult time. I can't tell you what a relief it is to get on the treadmill and run and then realize after an hour that for 60 whole minutes I didn't think of cancer or chemotherapy or my little girl suffering through both. So my pearls for you today are to remember what really matters, ensure you have your priorities straight, and never ever forget that triathlon is a luxury that we indulge in for ourselves to the betterment of those around us and should not do otherwise. Clutch those pearls to your chest, and if you're feeling generous, consider a donation to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in Lauren's name. On the show today, only a couple of episodes remain in my exploration of the issues and controversies raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Rolf Halden, an environmental scientist from Arizona State University, who is an expert in the impacts of industrial farming on the environment. We talk about the film and the realities of meat consumption and its sustainability for our planet. Reels for Wheels has two new suggestions for you for movies to watch on the trainer, an action film and an excellent example of film noir from about a decade ago. Before all of that, as always, I have a medical question to answer. Red light and near-infrared therapy is a relatively new entrant into the marketplace of recovery aids. One manufacturer of devices with red LED lamps has been pretty active on social media recently, and it got me wondering what this technology is and whether or not it might actually work to do what its maker says it does. I take a look at the evidence and tell you what I found, and that's coming up right now. For today's medical question, I'm going to take a look at yet another entrant into the marketplace for recovery tools. Juve, spelled J-O-O-V-V, is a company that markets red and near-infrared LED light panels that start at $295 and go all the way up to about $6,000, depending on how large the panel and how many lights are in them. These panels harness photobiomodulation to accomplish what Juve claims to be very wide-ranging and impressive results across a very uh, broad spectrum of applications. 
Photobiomodulation uses long wavelength light at the red end of the visible spectrum and near-infrared spectrum to penetrate the skin and muscle, where it is absorbed within the mitochondria by different kinds of proteins. There, so it is said, enhancement of adenosine triphosphate production then occurs, and this, uh, apparently, can improve muscle performance and endurance. Now, you will remember, if you've heard the podcast any time before, that ATP is the fuel that muscle cells use in order to contract and do the work that they have to do. So, enhancing ATP production this way would likely result in that kind of improved muscle performance and endurance that this theoretical uh, science suggests could happen. Now, photobiomodulation has several other mechanisms that have also been described that can theoretically improve muscle performance as well. These include stimulation of defenses against oxidative stress, which can occur with prolonged uh, prolonged bouts of exercise, prevention and repair of muscle damage, modulation of gene expression by activation of transcription factors, and the possible increase in the excitability of muscle fibers. So all of these things taken together, and with the inclusion of increased ATP production, could dramatically improve the ability of muscle to do the work that it has to do for longer periods of time. If, and that's a big if, photobiomodulation actually works. Now, Juve makes a lot of claims on their website, and to their credit, has a lot of references to back up their claims, at least so they say they back up their claims. Now, among the benefits that they claim to have uh, with these light panels are improved strength and endurance, better recovery, better sleep and sexual performance, improvements in joint pain, decreased inflammation, improved skin, and even better cognitive function. So far as I could tell, these devices may even be able to do your taxes and balance your checkbook. Okay, that's probably a slight exaggeration. But as you will know, and if you've listened to this podcast uh, for any amount of time, you'll hear me say this frequently, when device manufacturers start claiming all manner of benefits for their devices, instead of maybe restricting to things that make sense, then I start to become even more and more skeptical. So this is yet another example of some pretty outlandish claims that were based on some pretty small studies that honestly have very minimal applicability. And while the theory sounds good, the actual science maybe isn't quite so good. For example, the science for this device enhancing your skin and sexual function, not to mention your ability to sleep or think better, is all pretty weak. Uh, For example, the uh, science that's behind uh, improved cognitive function is based on one study, and that study looked at 11 patients with chronic traumatic brain injury, and they said that, uh, or in that study, the um, uh, researchers found that if you put uh, red lights on the patient's scalps, that patients with traumatic brain injury did show some improvements in their cognitive function. Well, Patients with traumatic brain injury, that's a long way from a normal, healthy athlete. And it's a little bit of a stretch to take a study of 11 patients that had no placebo controls and wasn't blinded to then be able to say that this device is going to improve cognitive function across the board. So it was those kinds of claims that made me a little bit skeptical of some of the things that they were talking about. However, uh, I'm going to focus most of this discussion on the very robust body of evidence that has been produced on photobiomodulation with respect to exercise performance. And most of this I'm going to get from a summary article that I found that uh, was published in 2016, which had a real large amount of data and uh, pointed... um, to uh, some evidence that uh, photobiomodulation may actually work in certain kinds of circumstances and scenarios. Uh, The best part about this article is that it really categorized the studies very well and gave a good overview of what the findings were in each of the studies, describing the scientific methods and giving a pretty good comprehensive overview of the results. So the first group of studies that were summarized in this paper looked at photobiomodulation in the upper extremities. 
Essentially, these red lights, uh, both in the red spectrum as well as the near-infrared spectrum, were applied to muscles in the arms and shoulders before or after exercise to see if performance or recovery was enhanced. And in this category, they found more than 10 different studies looked at uh, athletes performing exercise to exhaustion, and this exercise could be anything from bicep curls to pull-ups to swimming. Uh, They looked at the blood for markers of cell damage. They would assess for actual markers of performance, say the number or uh, amount of uh, weight that could be lifted in a bicep curl, and they would assess for objective uh, uh, and subjective markers of muscle soreness that would be classically seen with delayed onset muscle soreness. Now, the majority of the studies in this category found little to no benefit in most of the subjective things and the objective things that I've just mentioned. Some of the studies seem to show some benefit or improvement in cellular markers of damage, but no change in the objective measures when it came to delayed onset muscle soreness nor of, uh, in any markers of performance. One of the studies did actually show some improvement in DOMS, and one of the studies suggested improvement in performance. But overall, it's kind of hard to really take anything from this that suggested that photobiomodulation in the upper extremities was really all that impactful. Now, the best part of this is that all the studies included here, all of the 10 or more studies, were really scientifically pretty sound with excellent methods and often pretty robust sample sizes. But still, the results were just not that encouraging. A second group of studies looked at photobiomodulation effects on the lower extremities. So here we had, uh, again, some very well-designed studies with uh, some pretty decent sample sizes, and they looked at the application of these LED lights on the lower extremities and then put the legs through various types of exercises, usually leg extensions or hamstring curls. And uh, again, few of the results were definitively in favor of light therapy. Some of the studies suggested improved performance without changes in markers of cellular metabolism or damage, while others of the studies showed exactly the opposite. Uh, Performance was somewhat improved, or excuse me, uh, cellular markers were improved, but performance didn't really show any change. Still others of the studies showed improvement in delayed onset muscle soreness, and other ones that looked at this question didn't. So there was really no consistency across the studies, and it was really kind of hard to interpret what the results meant. And with that lack of consistency, I think the take-home message is that the jury's still out. A third group of studies evaluated photobiomodulation and its effects on exercise on a treadmill. In this situation, uh, more broad-based LED application across uh, large muscle groups of the legs were applied, and then individuals were asked to run on a treadmill to exhaustion. And here the results were more promising, but unfortunately the number of studies was smaller, and the strength of those studies was not quite as good as we saw with the previous two categories. Still, there were some suggestions that cellular markers of improved performance were real, and in some cases, this also translated to measurable uh, improvements in performance as well. However, this wasn't consistent across all the studies that were uh, documented in this review article, and uh, not all of them showed the same kind of results with respect to improvement both at the cellular level and in overall performance. The final group of studies that was summarized in this review article looked at photobiomodulation and its impact to affect longer-term changes, where we would expect to see genetic upregulation of muscle structure and performance, as well as the ability of muscles to handle oxidative stresses because of changes that would occur over time as you applied these LED lights uh, daily, once or twice a day for up to 30 minutes over a period of months. Now, once again, here the results uh, were fairly inconsistent, and while in some cases there was evidence of changes in cellular architecture and even in the markers that one would expect to help with oxidative stress, this didn't reliably manifest in any changes in performance. Still, there was some evidence that red light therapy could have some impact here, but the magnitude of that effect remains unclear. So what are we to take from all of this? Well, clearly the makers of the Juve devices are being a little bit generous with their interpretation of the science. And this is understandable because they have a pretty expensive product to sell, and they obviously want to get it across to as many athletes as possible. 
Now, unlike many of the other products I've reviewed, I wouldn't categorically say that the Juve and other photo excuse me, other photo biomodulation devices like the Juve don't work or that they don't do what their makers say. However, it's fair to say that the scientific evidence is much less clear-cut than the Juve would have you believe. And the magnitude of the benefits that one could realistically expect from these devices is unlikely to be anywhere close to what is being suggested. With that said, I do believe that this technology may have some benefits to offer. I just can't make an argument for most people spending as much money as this device costs because I remain unconvinced that those benefits would really be worth the amount of the investment that is actually required. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. For my regular interview segment of the podcast, I'm going to continue with my series taking a deeper dive into some of the questions raised by the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't seen the film or heard the first interviews in the series, I would urge you to do so, though it's not necessary before listening to this one, as each of them can stand on their own. Dr. Rolf Halden is director of the Center for Environmental Health Engineering at the Biodesign Institute, professor in the Ira A. Fulton School for Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment, and senior sustainability scientist in the Global Institute of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Dr. Halton is a noted expert in determining where in the environment mass-produced chemicals wind up, their impact on health, and how to remove them from contaminated water resources, aquifers, and agricultural soils. In 2008, Dr. Halden co-authored a report along, for, along with Dr. Kellogg Schwab for the Pew Charitable Trust's Commission on Industrial Farm Production. That report was entitled Environmental Impact of Industrial Farm Animal Production and had some very worrisome conclusions about the consequences of industrial animal farming on both the environment and public health. I'm honored to have Dr. Halden with me today to discuss his report and the related issues discussed in the Game Changers film. Welcome, Dr. Halden. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, in your view, I know that you've seen the film recently, uh, what do you think the Game Changers gets right, and what do you think they get wrong with respect to the environmental impact of uh, industrial animal farming? Yeah, I think one thing that the film definitely gets right is that we have to have a discussion, a discourse about diet. It's, you know, it's important for our health individually, and it's important for the health of the planet and the survival of our species. And so having a discussion of uh, what we eat, uh, where the food is coming from, and particularly whether, you know, and how much uh, meat we should consume, I think uh, are very important topics. Um, but we have a tendency to paint things in black and white and don't allow a lot of gray shades in between. And I think uh, that that's an issue, and maybe that's one of the weaknesses of the film, that it doesn't allow for uh, kind of a, a more nuanced interpretation of the challenges of, of a diet and uh, of how we feed humanity, and and also not uh, selling maybe vegetarian lifestyle as the you know the panacea to better performance uh, in sports. Uh, that may or may not be true. There there really isn't a lot of data as far as I can tell, um, but it's an important topic, and I think the the film uh, did good in in that it uh, kind of shown a, a spotlight on that. Now, I read your report for the Pew Commission, and I thought that one of the more fascinating aspects of it was the description of how farming has changed in the past five or so decades from principally small family-owned farms to what the landscape looks like today. Could you maybe give us a concise summary of uh, what you wrote in your report about that change? Yeah, in essence, um, so what we observed in agriculture and also what we, I think, find in our personal lives is that uh, we have lost this, uh, you know, the, the linkage and the bonds that existed in, you know, in a village uh, way back in time. And uh, we are often not in the know anymore where our food is coming from, how far it has traveled, what the conditions are of the workers that produce the food, uh, what the composition of the food is. All these things um, have, uh, have changed. Uh, and similar in agricultural practices, we have seen a move from uh, having you know, a lot of very small farms where people uh, support themselves and their community to a trend to you know, having these small farms disappear and having very large farms, and particularly in animal um, production, 
where we have huge farms that feed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and have very large numbers of livestock. And so uh, the, the business model of farming, and particularly animal farming, has definitely changed significantly. In the same report, uh, you and Dr. Schwab described the major environmental and potential public health problems that are created by factory farming, and you kind of highlight them as being issues related to animal waste products, contamination of that waste with antimicrobials and various other chemicals, the concentration of animals in small spaces, making disease incubation and outbreak a very real threat, and the need to transport animals vast distances. I found myself wondering how many of those things weren't actually problems before. I mean, we we even with small farms, a lot of those things were still potentially problems. H- how much of these problems are exacerbated and to what degree are they magnified by industrial farming? Yeah, you know, I think when we go back in time, it used to be that the farmers were the stewards of the land. And so... They had a genuine interest in protecting the land, taking care of it, because that essentially was their future and that it was uh, uh, providing uh, them with their livelihood. Um, and in today's model, we have other decision makers who decide what is being grown, when it is harvested, uh, you know, at what price is it, it's being sold. And uh, so the farmer has been removed from a lot of the decision-making that determines whether the land is protected and uh, what quality the food is that comes off the farm. I mean, in, in essence, we have a model today where a lot of farmers uh, just, um, you know, sign a contract and they raise animals that they technically don't even own. They get, you know, they get picked up and uh, the farmer receives a predetermined price. The farmer doesn't know what it is exactly that he or she feeds the animals because the, the food arrives too, and it might contain antibiotics and other things. Um, and so the decision-making process is really one that has been completely changed. And with that, the uh, putting at risk the sustainability of our agricultural business model. If industrial farming magnifies a lot of these issues and really does dominate the landscape, there are still those operations, even though they make up a very tiny fraction of the market, there are still those operations of small family-owned farms selling higher-priced products, but still what they claim to be, you know, uh, more organically produced uh, animals, more organically produced livestock, etc. Are those uh, facilities better for the environment, or is it really just the raising of livestock for meat that is is the problem. Yeah, I think we, we have an imbalance in that in the industrial agricultural model. We you know have a lot of subsidies that are being paid and it's it's really it's counterintuitive that food that is produced far away, sometimes on the other side of the globe and reaching us, traveling you know thousands of miles is cheaper than the food that we produce right there in our backyard. Right, and so if you go to a farmer's market, the the uh, the food might be you know tastier and fresher and all that, but uh, you seem to be have to pay a premium for something that is locally provided, and uh, that can be explained by the fact that um, the industrial process is very efficient, but it also is not you know taking care of uh, the animals and the land and the natural resources in general as much um, as we do when we have a farmer making decisions. And uh, and so we have, I think we have moved from a intrinsically more healthy farming model of small farms to one that is intrinsically much more vulnerable to, um, you know, uh, public health risks as well as um, damaging the environmental and uh, overusing natural resources that are very limited as we feel more and more. But are those remaining small farms, the ones that are local and maybe a little more costly, are, are they better stewards of their environment? Or again, I, I guess what I'm trying to find out is, is, is farming livestock always going to be bad for the environment? Or can it be done in a way that is, is not as bad for the planet and public health? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So when we ask these these questions of you know should I should I eat meat or not, this is the black and white question, and then you you try to produce an answer. But the truth is that uh, the answers are, are more nuanced and depend on the case. There is in principle nothing wrong with eating meat, right? Particularly if you have a very small population of uh, of carnivores. 
But uh, the population of carnivores, of human carnivores, has increased, right? And now we're looking at 7.7 billion people and uh, moving toward maybe 9 or 10 billion people. And uh, it is very difficult to, you know, provide a meat-rich diet for so many people without, you know, over-exhausting our soils, our, our water, and, uh, and our climate because uh, there's huge uh, carbon emissions, as has been mentioned in the, um, in the documentary. So let's shift our focus a little bit to the production of feed. You mentioned it uh, briefly, uh, talking about the farmers who just receive the feed without actually growing it. Uh, is the production of feed for these industrial farming practices, is that part of the problem? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what type of uh, feed we produce, under what conditions, and then to what animals we feed it. And we, have, we are finding ourselves in, a, in a, a place right now where we subsidize the production of corn. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with corn. It's just that we have you know, huge amounts of monocultures uh, that uh, you know, cover large swaths of land uh, you know, in the, in the breadbasket of America. And uh, so we have a tremendous loss of biodiversity. We have, uh, you know, subsidies that encourage farmers uh, to grow these types of crops. And it creates a disadvantage for small farmers who don't get, you know, the the benefits of of subsidies. Um, And so we see large amounts of pesticides being produced. Sometimes the crops that are being produced then are being fed to animals that are really not, uh, you know, you know, the right consumers, if you will. So feeding corn to cows is is, is really not something that you see in nature, um, but that's something that uh, we have, uh, you know, created in our industrialized animal production model. And uh, that creates, you know, again, new risks and uh, along with, you know, the use of of antibiotics and so forth to combat um, the effect of uh, having very crowded conditions for the animals. Also, you know, in the past when farms were small, you know, cow dung and and manure was used sustainably as a fertilizer. But if you have a gigantic uh, concentrated animal feeding operation or CAFO, um, then uh, you have the production of huge amounts of waste that are occurring very concentrated in an area and are difficult to manage. And uh, it turns out that the regulations that we have are, you know, not particularly stringent and uh, extreme weather events and so forth have demonstrated that uh, that we have overflows of these uh, manure lagoons uh, that are filled um, with animal feces and uh, that then spread not only nutrients but also the pathogens that are part of the manure creating public health risks. Clearly, industrial farming of animals is uh, problematic, uh, not just for uh, the environment, but also for public health. Uh, What about the farming practices of fruits and vegetables and grains? Uh, Are they done any more sustainably or with any more thought towards public health and environment? I mean, we keep hearing about outbreaks of, uh, you know, human disease in things like lettuce. Uh, Can we hope that, uh, you know, industrial practices aren't being used with our fruits and vegetables as well? Well, I think that the, the food is much more traceable and it's easier to find out if you actually, you know, buy the, the food, the crops from a farmer who produces it, right? And so you can ask questions, but in the supermarket, it's very difficult to tell, you know, where your food is coming from. What you see is that it's, uh, that it's very cheap and, uh, and, and abundant. And uh, the, the issues uh, that are underlying, you know, this low cost are, are really um, not visible to us because we don't live in the place anymore where most of the food is being produced. I mean, uh, the, in 2008, the world population shift, shifted to a, um, a population that mostly lives in cities. So over 50% of people, you know, live in urban environments. A lot of them have never seen the places where we produce food. So they just eat whatever is being presented. And sometimes they don't even know, you know, how the crop looks like. Um, when it is being produced. We don't have that with small farms. With small farms, we have, you know, a much more resilient agriculture where, for example, if you have a disease um, uh, outbreak on a small farm that is fairly contained, right? And if if the farmer slaughters the animals themselves, uh, then, you know, you don't run the risk of uh, cross-contaminating, you know, hundreds of thousands of carcasses of of animals that are being processed in these uh, gigantic uh, slaughterhouses. Um, that are now uh, commonplace. So the, the the risk increases with size, 
um, and the, the magnitude of, of meat production. And of course, there's also the, the public health uh, challenge of, uh, you know, a lot of us consuming too much meat and, uh, and suffering adverse health outcomes, you know, individually and then as well as the environmental impacts uh, that are triggered by the production of the meat. But are those same economies of scale uh, causing the same kinds of health and environmental impacts in the farming of fruits and vegetables? Um, so the, the footprint, the environmental footprint of, uh, you know, producing a, a vegetarian diet is, is much lower than that of animal husbandry. Um, but there's no need, you know, to, it, you know, it is okay to eat meat. It's just the question is how much meat can we responsibly eat before it is too much. And as the world population grows, it becomes more difficult. But in principle and in general, I think the statement is true that uh, if you uh, rely on a vegetarian um, diet, then uh, that is much, you know, much easier on the land, on the resources, right? And also on the, the carbon footprint that's associated with the food production. And it typically also is, you know, is it's a diet that supports your health uh, well, as long as you eat a balanced diet. Now, your report goes on to conclude that current industrial animal farming practices are simply unsustainable. Uh, you know, given what we've talked about, the fact that, you know, the population is growing, that uh, there is an ever-growing number of carnivores on this planet, and the fact is that industrial animal farming really is the most efficient means of getting as much meat as we can to those mouths, is meat consumption going to have to become a thing of the past? Or is there any form that could have less of an impact on our environment and public health, but could still feed 8 billion people? Yeah, I think, well, I think we are approaching the point where we see that we, we need to think about this carefully and that overconsumption of whatever it is that we overconsume is just something that we continue to do, but we have to stop and manage. And, and we're talking overconsumption of energy, right, of uh, freshwater uh, resources, as well as land, agricultural land. And so the industrialization of the agricultural process has uh, resulted in, in a depletion of natural resources. So we see a reduction in biodiversity. For a lot of people, that doesn't mean much. But, you know, if you don't have biodiversity, if you don't have insects, then you don't have pollination, you know, and you have to truck in your bees. We didn't, you know, need to do that. And on a smaller farm, uh, there, there typically is no need if you provide, you know, a landscape and, and a biodiversity uh, that uh, supports all the species, you know, whether it's plants, plants or animals. Um, we, at the, in the industrial model, we also look at, you know, the, the use of tremendous amounts of fossil fuels as an energy source to not only drive the production of the fertilizer that is being applied and of the machinery that works the land, but also of the transportation of the crops then from, you know, remote places to the consumer who might find him or herself on the other side of the planet. And uh, this creates big problems. Another one, particularly I think for the uh, American Midwest, is the overuse of very limited um, freshwater, right? I mean, if you look at the older maps of the United States, you see the great Western American desert. We have transformed that in, you know, in part into the American breadbasket. But you've got to remember that that water that we are pumping to the surface there, is, so we're using groundwater to irrigate the soil. That is fossil water, and so we're using fossil water and fossil uh, fuel to, you know, to produce the crops that are showing up at very low prices in our supermarkets. And you know, you don't need to be a genius to figure out that this cannot last. And imagine what the American Midwest will look like if we have uh, pumped down the water level of these ancient aquifers enough that the wells go dry and that people have difficulties producing water. Um, that will essentially, you know, transform the land into a dust bowl, like we've seen in California during drought conditions. And, uh, and so ultimately the agricultural practices are unsustainable and it is easier, you know, on, the, on a small farm to um, kind of adhere to a more sustainable management of the land. So I gather that it's your perspective that in order to feed the growing population, we need to go back to more of a small farming model. Is that, that kind of what your conclusion is? Uh, well, not, not really. I mean, there's, in principle, there's nothing wrong with, you know, with increasing yields. 
But what has happened is that we lost the, you know, the stewardship kind of when we when we look at a farmer in the, you know, a, few, a century back, uh, he or she, they really, you know, took care of the land. We're not doing this anymore. And we're, used, we're losing topsoil to wind erosion and to uh, stormwater runoff. And we are over, you know, stressing our aquifers. And we're doing a lot of things that, that ultimately will not work anymore. Um, if the government uh, would step in or the industrial, you know, producers of, uh, of crops would align with our desire to produce a more, you know, circular economy that is uh, observing the limits and the carrying capacity of our soils, water resources, and the planet as a whole, then, you know, there's intrinsically nothing wrong with having very large farms. Uh, but also, I mean, we still want to preserve biodiversity as best as we can. So it would also be important that we have crop rotation, that we don't till too much and, uh, and have land uh, lay fallow rather than, you know, over-applying fertilizer that then runs off and creates pollution issues. So this sounds like a very complicated problem that has arisen over the past five decades that is going to take some very, you know, complicated solutions and obviously is going to take time given the power of the farm lobby specifically you know the lobby that represents the interests of industrial farm operations how optimistic are you that we're going to see the kind of change that you think is necessary in the time frame that it needs to happen well the sooner we you know we change our ways the better we will be off right that applies to the climate to our water resources to our air quality you name it you know, so there is a need to to act. Um, yeah, it is it is a big challenge, but but on the other hand, you know, we can do our part to it. And so, by avoiding you know foods that have a huge environmental impact, um, you know, we can reduce our individual impact and footprint, and with that, uh, just improve the possibility of feeding you know the billions of people that are hungry uh, and already present on this on this planet. And so, yes, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. And I think that the, the film, uh, the documentary helped to kind of shine a spotlight on this and, uh, and make the point that uh, if people eat more vegetarian uh, products rather than meat, right, that is something that is fairly simple to do. It doesn't need to be, you know, 100% vegetarian, but a reduction in meat will not only, you know, improve the health of the people, but also will make it possible that uh, to sustain a larger population and to uh, not violate the, the natural resources. Um, there was a lot of information in the film uh, that suggested that uh, vegetarians are overall healthier. And it, um, one would gain the impression that they also have a you know, higher life expectancy. Um, but I don't think that the scientific data support that. Uh, what, what I did find in, in my research is that, you know, vegetarians have an 8% reduced risk of developing cancer. And if you uh, subscribe to a vegan diet, you know, you can reduce your cancer risk by 15%. I mean, a lot of people are concerned more about their health than, you know, the health of the planet. But if you can do good on both ends, <laughs> why not do it? Why not add, you know, one, two or three days where you um, have uh, an exclusive or a more vegetarian diet than uh, just relying on uh, on meat and uh, kind of these uh, high um, carbon uh, um, demanding uh, meat products that we see in the supermarkets. Yeah, at the end of the day, you're advocating for the power of the consumer and the power of the pocketbook to drive these kinds of changes because uh, corporations will always respond to where consumers bring their money. So the, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, Dr. Rolf Halden is the director of the Center for Environmental Health Engineering at the Biodesign Institute and joined me today from Arizona State University for uh, a fascinating conversation on the environmental impacts and the impacts on public health of industrial animal farming. Dr. Halden, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to speak. And now it's time for Reels for Wheels, that part of the show where I am joined by my friend and colleague, Janetta Iwanaki, 
many-time Ironman finisher and movie savant to help me and help you with movie recommendations to while away your time on the trainer. Winter is coming to an end rapidly, thankfully, in the Northern Hemisphere, but you've probably still got a few trainer sessions left, and for that, we are happy to bring to you our suggestions for movies to watch. If you're not doing Zwift, you're not doing the Sufferfest, some people like to watch the movies, and so we're here to help. Welcome, Janetta. Thanks for having me. So, Janetta, we uh, have talked about uh, a wide variety of uh, different types of movies this season, and it's been a lot of fun. Uh, what do you have for us today? So today we're going to talk about one of my favorite uh, underrated action films, which is called Wanted. Um, came out in uh, around 2008. Um, it's got an amazing cast. Um, James McAvoy stars, uh, who I wouldn't always think of as an action star, um, but is perfect in this role as somebody who you wouldn't envision that way, becoming um, a really uh, intense and badass assassin. Um, brought along the way by uh, Angelina Jolie's character, The Fox. Um, and the cast other than that is also excellent. It's got Morgan Freeman as sort of this older mentor who brings them all along. Um, some of the other uh, characters in what they call the fraternity, which is a group of assassins, um, include uh, actors like Common, who we've talked about before uh, in the John Wick films, mm -hmm. um, who's also a great action star. Um, and the general gist of the film is it's about a guy who lives a normal everyday life and gets pulled into this world of uh, sort of superhuman assassins who are trying to balance uh, fate in the world, I guess, is sort of how they put it, um, and have these really impressive, amazing, and uh, fascinating action sequences where they use all sorts of different techniques to carry out uh, some of these assassinations. Um, and he finds out that his father was once an assassin before him in this uh, secret society um, and was killed by another assassin. And so he, that's how he gets pulled into this world. I knew your father. My father left the week I was born, so... Your father died yesterday on the rooftop of the Metropolitan Building. Sorry. Uh, look, the liquor aisle's just over there, so if you want to Your father go... was one of the greatest assassins who ever lived. The man who killed him is behind you. Gotcha. Um, it gets really okay. indoctrinated. That's what I was going to ask, because uh, I have not seen this one. This mm -hmm. is another one I'm very excited to have recommendations to watch when I'm on the trainer, so this is one that you're helping me out with. Um, I watched the trailer, and I read up a little bit on it uh, before recording today, and uh, I was trying to understand how they knew he would have this skill that they show in the trailer, the, yeah. uh, being able to curve a bullet, so I yes. gather it has to do with his uh, his heritage. His, his ancestry, family heritage. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think um, you mentioned this concept of curving bullets, it's one of sort of several unusual techniques that they have um, that involves sort of managing to control things in a different way than you might otherwise expect. And again, it leads to some really interesting action sequences um, that tie through that. Um, one of the other things, though, that I love about this movie is that I think sometimes these action films take themselves really seriously. And this one has got this really twisted sense of humor to it that I just really appreciate. Um, particularly the opening really feels almost more like something from Office Space or perhaps even... Um, Somewhere between Office Space and Fight Club, it's a little bit darker than Office Space is, but that sort of concept of what the workaday life is like, um, and then just how drastically that changes. Oh, um, interesting. There's a great scene involving a computer keyboard that oh, okay. just pulls you right in and tells you everything you need to know. All right. Uh, well, I, I, like I said, I haven't seen it. The trailer was very much uh, entertaining. Uh, a little over the top of some of the driving yes, sequences early, as it but be. <laughs> yeah, uh, but definitely looked like it would be uh, a a lot of fun and uh, I'm, I'm not sure how I missed this because uh, I love the cast yeah, yeah. and uh, it definitely fantastic. looked like a, an action film that I would definitely enjoy if not yeah. necessarily going to the theater certainly something I would enjoy at home yeah and the director um, of this movie whose name I'm sure I'll butcher um, but Tamir uh, Mambatov, yeah um, has really been known for some cult classic action films um, in 
Russian. Um, and particularly Day Watch and Night Watch are the two that he's most well known for. And uh, apparently this was his first English language film, but he brings that really unique se- action sensibility that's very different from anything else that's out there. And I think this is that's part of why this is another cult classic. Yeah, it's nice when, uh, I remember John Woo when he did his first movie in English, uh, Mission Impossible, one of the Mission Impossible movies. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to see like you said, you know, this this guy who did so many movies in a foreign language and then he comes and he brings those sensibilities to an English language film. I, I remember specifically the the birds uh, as Tom Cruise is walking through this the tunnel and these birds are flying in front of him, which is a very signature sort of John Woo shot right. uh, that we hadn't really been privy to in English language. And I'm sure there are similar types of things in this film because here's a guy we're not familiar with and he's probably using the same kinds of techniques and same kinds of Absolutely. shots that he's only used in his Russian film. And, and they'll be novel to us. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of what makes it so unique. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to uh, get that on my list and I'm going to take a look at it because, like I said, the trailer looked very entertaining and I do like the cast very much. So I'm yeah. very interested to see it. And it's worth it for the un- some of the unique training montages involved. So. Oh, good. Excellent. And uh, what, well kind worth of, your time. what kind of, speaking of training, what kind of trainer rides would you suggest this film is uh, good for? So this one is good for, I think, just about anything. Um, maybe not a recovery ride, um, but in particular, I. I've enjoyed it for uh, longer intervals, especially because a lot of these action sequences um, are a little bit longer, more drawn out. And actually, I really like uh, the training montages for those longer intervals. Um, However, there's enough short, punchy action to it that if you wanted to do something more intense, um, you know, certainly above and beyond sweet spots, even VO2 max, you could definitely do it here. Excellent. Excellent. So for my suggestion today, I am going with a genre of film that is one of my favorites, and that is film noir. Um, I have been enthralled with film noir pretty much since the earliest days that I got invested in movie making, which was sort of in my junior college days when I took a movie uh, course and learned about uh, film noir and uh, some of the original... um, uh, Billy Wilder films from back in the 40s and 50s that sort of set the standard for this kind of genre. And uh, the movie that I am going to suggest today is Drive. Uh, this movie is uh, now about eight years old mm-hmm. uh, and starred Ryan Gosling, Carey Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Ron Perlman, and Albert Brooks in a very non-Albert Brooks type of role. <laughs> um, Drive is a story of a, an unnamed man uh, played by Gosling. Uh, by day, he's a garage mechanic and sometime Hollywood stunt driver. And by night, he uh, does getaway driving for small-time crooks. Um, you tell him a place and a time, and he's going to get there and give you five minutes to do your deed and then get you the hell out of there. You go over the five minutes, and he's gone. Uh, Gosling's character falls for his neighbor, played by uh, Mulligan, who is a married mother of a young boy whose husband is soon released from jail, only to find out that he has an outlandish debt to pay in order to finally be able to escape his life of crime. Uh, The driver agrees to help him out so that he can become the family man that he so desperately wants to, but the holdup turns out to be a setup with mob money involved and things go very, very wrong for everyone. Uh, Drive is an excellent example of film noir that's updated to the 1990s Los Angeles of movie producer come gangsters and is a classic example of deft filmmaking in this genre. I very much enjoyed it. It is not the kind of movie that you can watch for like really high intensity uh, type trainer rides because it does have a pacing that is very characteristic of film noir films. It, there are a lot of like lingering shots. There's a lot mm-hmm. of you know shots with like you know where the lighting is very important and the music is is not like driving or or specifically upbeat in many uh, scenes. But it is such an excellent movie and does have enough punctuated action scenes that uh, it definitely is suitable for you know longer again uh, I keep using these kinds of trainer rides as <laughs> my examples for movies this year but longer sort of uh, steady state type rides uh, and this is a movie that uh, I really enjoy and uh, really think is uh, if you're not really um, savvy with film noir this is a great recent example of, uh, of the genre. Yeah and I think uh, one of the things that I found really compelling about it was that there was a lot of character development, particularly 
you know, especially if you think about some of the older film noirs, there are oftentimes sort of shady reasons that people are doing the things they do. And I feel like motivation in this film is something that you really get to dig into and understand. Um, and part of it, I think, is because the cast was so involved in even the development of their characters. So Brian Cranston was a great example where, you know, this was something he came to after having started Breaking Bad, actually was sought out particularly because of that role. And then um, really got to dig in, help develop that character and make it something different. Um, Oscar Isaac was another one who was oh, really terrific, got yeah. to build that character to something yeah. not what you would typically think of as an ex-con. Um, yeah. So I, I thought that was one of the things that really sort of pulls you in and almost makes you forget just how long you've been writing for. Yeah, and I, I remember being literally viscerally disturbed by Albert Brooks <laughs> because oh, <yeah. laughs> because not only is he just a very you know dark uh, bad man in this movie, but it was so close to Finding Nemo and uh, watching True. Finding That's Nemo. That's a good point. Yeah. I actually didn't see it until later, so I didn't put that temporal relationship oh, together, but that would yeah. that would really mess me Watching up. Finding Nemo with my kids and, uh, you know, they were really into that film and so I'd watch that over and over again and then seeing Albert Brooks do the things he does in this movie, oh, it's, yeah. it's really, That's... yeah, it's kind of jarring. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because I've always been an Albert Brooks fan and I've got a, a few personal favorites and this is so far from anything else that I've right? enjoyed. I've really liked him. Yeah. But he's phenomenal. He's terrific. He's and terrifying. I, it kind of makes you wonder why he never left his comedic sort of roles in the past because right. he does this really, really well. He really plays a straight, bad man very, very well. And yeah. It's true. Although I will say that I still think that Mother is a fantastic comedy, although it's not related at all to the things we're talking about today. Anything talking about protective ice on top of the sherbet in your freezer is just <laughs> perfect. Did Shannon ever tell you how we met? I used to produce movies in the 80s. Kind of like action films, sexy stuff. One critic called them European. I thought they were shit. Anyway, he arranged all the cars for me, did all the stunts. I liked them. I liked having them around, even though he overcharged the shit out of me. His next business venture, he got involved with some of Nino's friends. They didn't go for the overcharging bit. They broke his pelvis. He's never had a lot of luck. Yes, he is a very, very uh, funny, funny guy, and and always with that dry. He's he was like Stephen Wright before Stephen Wright. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, uh, two more uh, movie recommendations for you today, and uh, Wanted and Drive, and they will both be added to the archives, which can be found on both the TriDoc podcast and TriDoc coaching websites. Janetta, thank you once again for joining me, and we will be back for our final Reels for Wheels of the season uh next episode thanks for having me happy writing and that's it for another episode of the tridoc podcast i hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the coaching services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. On the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast, I will complete my series on the Netflix documentary The Game Changers with an interview with a noted animal rights lawyer and co-founder of the Canadian animal law group Animal Justice. Peter Sankoff is a professor of law at the University of Alberta and also happens to be my brother, and he will join me to discuss why we should care about the morality and ethics of meat consumption. I will also have a medical question to answer and another episode of Reels for Wheels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.